Today, because it's Good Friday, I want to talk to you about the seven last words of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so to begin for our study, let's pray. Lord, we just ask you to open our hearts up to understand more fully what you have done on this on the cross. On a day that so often slides by with hardly any notice, I pray, God, that we would understand that this day, almost 2,000 years ago, changed history. Lord, may our hearts be tuned in to what you want to say to us as we are at home, as we are searching our souls to understand what's going on in our world with this pandemic. And may this study, may this look into your word, encourage us and keep us going. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you could choose the last words when you die, what message would you want to say? Well, each of Jesus' seven last words were very rich with meaning. Jesus was not a victim of some tragic mistake. He was and is a victorious king who opened the way to free his people. So we're going to look at the first of those sayings in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And I would again invite you, if you would like to turn to the outline that you could find on the Chewila Evangelical Free Church website at www.chewelahefree.org. And you can find not only a outline of this sermon, but some questions and some things you can do to apply this message. So first, we're going to look at Luke 23, 34, where Jesus said his first saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, the meaning and the significance, the theme of this saying was about forgiveness. The very first words from from the cross that Jesus said are about forgiveness. It was the whole point of the cross. Soldiers were gambling for his clothes, the crowd mocking during his unjust execution. But these taunting spectators had heard Jesus teach. They had watched him perform miracles, and now they're taunting him. They're disillusioned, as we talked about last Sunday. Yet Jesus responds opposite from how I would respond or maybe you would respond, instead of threatening or or cursing them, Jesus prayed for them. He took and interceded to the Father for them. At the very height of his agony, his heart is filled with compassion. Well, Jesus was actually filling prophecy that came from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, which says, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Bishop Ryle has said, as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. I love that, don't you? Well, God wipes away our sin, not because we were ignorant and didn't just didn't know any better, oh gosh, if we just had more knowledge. And and he didn't wipe away our sin because we made up for it by being good people doing good deeds. God wiped away our sin because of his lavish grace. It was about the grace of God on the cross. Psalm 103.13 says, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Well, if God can forgive those who torture to death his son, 
How could your sins be any worse? And yet a lot of people feel like, oh, I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I've done more. God, if he, if you knew what I have done, you'd never forgive me. And yet, look, these people tortured and murdered God himself. You know, the only unpardonable sin is rejecting Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit gives that testimony, Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins, and we reject it, then we have committed an unpardonable sin of rejecting Jesus, who is God. So do you really believe that God has forgiven your sins, or are you trapped in guilt? If forgiveness was offered to those who murdered the very author of life, then it's available to to me and to you. So maybe this time at home is a good time to reflect on your soul and ask, do I feel forgiven? Have I claimed that forgiveness that God gave me on this day almost 2,000 years ago? Well, let's look at our second saying from Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. He's speaking, of course, to the thief on the cross. There were two, one on each side. So this is about salvation. This is about going to heaven. So the thief, now if you stop and think about it, he is perhaps the most unlikely recipient for forgiveness in history. He was probably in his time one of the most wicked people on the scene, a career criminal, bad to the bone. And maybe when this thief heard Jesus asking the Father to forgive the people. Maybe it got him to start wondering, you know, like, could this apply to me? Maybe he noticed Jesus suffering abuse with the kind of grace, and he maybe he realized that Jesus was really the Messiah. And so we hear him in Luke 23, verse 41 and 42, rebuking his partner, the other thief. And he says, we are getting what, what our deeds deserved, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief was in no position to do anything to earn salvation. He was in an utterly hopeless situation, and his last desperate plea was for something he knew he did not deserve. Jesus' response was one of, of almost unfathomable saying, and how could you say this to a man who was wicked until the last moment? And so we find this so hard to believe, yet it was some of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. Jesus promised that that this thief would see him in paradise or heaven. See, there's no hint that this man had any kind of a previous following of Jesus or or had a well-developed faith like we would kind of expect. It just... It doesn't fit our proper faith ideas of what faith should be. But there it is, simple, raw faith with nothing else that could possibly have been added. So have you staked your life on Jesus and know that when your time comes, you will be with him in heaven? Or are you hoping that you can stack up enough good works and and good deeds and and you'll get into heaven based on that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? But that's not what the thief was able to do. And so why do we think we could do that? Well, that's our second saying about forgiveness. You will be, be with me today in paradise. And then our third saying is in John chapter 19, 
verse 26. And Jesus is speaking to the apostle John, the only uh, apostle that's, that's left on the scene at the cross. The others had fled and to his mother. And so he says in John 19, 26, dear woman, here is your son. And to John, he says, here is your mother. And so I believe the theme of this saying is about relationship. As Jesus is dying, his mother is among those who had stood with him. And imagine what Mary was feeling. Watching your child die has to be one of life's worst tragedies. Jesus was a real human being, a man who had once been a baby in the womb of his mother Mary. And now Mary is watching her firstborn son endure the horrible torture of crucifixion as crowds of people verbally abuse him. I wonder if she recalled Simeon's prophecy back in Luke chapter 2 at Jesus' birth. You remember when they took Joseph and Mary took Jesus in to have him circumcised and, and proper you know, eight-day purification in the temple. And Simeon made this prophecy And then one of the pieces of it, he said in verse 35 of Luke 2 to Mary, he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Do you think Mary recalled those words at this point? Well, even as Jesus was a savior redeeming mankind, he was still a son making provision for his mother. In the midst of all of this great anguish, Jesus' attention was not on himself, Now Jesus creates a family relationship because he wants to make sure Mary is taken care of. And so he says to John and Mary, you will be family now. And John will need to care for Mary for the rest of his life. That's what that meant. You know, in the Middle East, family is, is the building block of everything the society is about. It's all about those familial relationships. And so John would care for, for Mary for the rest of his life and her life. So did Jesus choose to do this because he knew his biological brothers, James and Jude, would be eventually martyred and John would not? Well, perhaps. So what does Mary's presence at the cross mean to you? What does Jesus care for his family say to you? So our third saying is about relationship. And so let's look at our fourth saying. In Matthew chapter 27, 46, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus is talking about redemption now. Now, it may not look like that from those verses, those words, but let's unpack what that means. Jesus is not accusing God the Father or questioning God the Father's love. As Jesus is dying on the cross, he cries out with this loud voice and this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, which is an extended prophecy about the crucifixion. It would be very good reading this weekend, the whole of Psalm 22. See, earlier, the religious leaders, while he was hanging on the cross, had mocked Jesus, and and they sarcastically quoted another verse from Psalm 22, 8. That's what the enemies said uh, against the righteous person in Psalm 22. It's And imagine kind of in this sarcastic tone. He trusts in the Lord, they say. 
then let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And so what they're really saying is if you were really the Messiah, you wouldn't be on a cross dying. Your father wouldn't do that to you if he was really God. So Jesus, when he referenced Psalm 22.1 to say, he's saying that they are crucifying the actual Messiah. That Jesus' words are not doubting the Father, but identifying with the prophecy in Psalm 22. Now, as horrible as the physical pain that Jesus was experiencing, the Father's full wrath against sin, I believe, was far worse. God was punishing his own beloved son as if he had committed every wicked deed ever done by every sinner, every person for all time. Imagine the weight of all sin of the entire world for all of history, past, present, and future, crushing down on Jesus' shoulders. And so Jesus had never experienced the aloneness of being completely cut off from God because the Father, when he can't look at sin, he turns away. And so Jesus is separated from his Father, I believe, for the very first time ever in beyond eternity. He's never been separated from the Father. And now the Father can't look at all of that sin, and so the Father has to turn away. Think about that. The Father in his holiness could not look, and so Jesus was alone. And it would feel like, I'm fulfilling a prophecy, and this is what the forsaking would mean to him. So I want to ask you, have you ever considered that Jesus was abandoned by the Father so that you might not be? Have you ever felt alone or forsaken? Maybe you feel alone right now. So how does knowing that Jesus has experienced aloneness and abandonment, how does that strengthen your faith right now? To know he has walked where you are walking right now, perhaps. So redemption. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is quoting Psalm 22. And now for our fifth saying from John 19, 28. Jesus says, I am thirsty, and I believe this is about the human suffering that Jesus experienced. Jesus experienced all the normal human emotions and limitations of of human flesh. He lost a great amount of bodily fluids before and during the crucifixion. So his statement was, was partly a request for something to drink, or saying, I'm thirsty, or just letting... People know that. And in response, if you look at John 19, 29, it says a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. John also records a deeper purpose in Jesus' statement, I think, of thirst, because it was to fulfill scriptures, John says in order to fulfill the scriptures. So what scriptures do you think John might have had in mind? Well, I'd like to suggest Psalm 69, 21. It says in Psalm 69, 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. The living water was experiencing overwhelming human thirst. Are you thirsty for him? 
Does your soul long for the living water that Jesus supplies? For something to fill up those empty spaces in your soul, to go in and continue to pour out from, from yourself to give to others, you have to go back to that well of the living water and be refreshed and replenished. So that is our fifth saying, I am thirsty about Jesus' human suffering. And then let's look at John 19, verse 30, where it says, it is finished. I believe this is about the completion of Jesus' mission. Jesus did not mean that his suffering had ended and his life was over, although both both of those were true. But when he says that it is finished, it's in a Greek perfect tense, which is very significant because it meant that Jesus' work of redemption is now completed But now it will extend into all eternity. It has lasting and forever consequences. Jesus has accomplished his mission. God's justice is satisfied. The wages of sin are paid forever. The Old Testament law and prophets are fulfilled. And he has inaugurated the kingdom of God. Because Jesus finished his work of salvation, that means Me and you, we cannot add anything to it. Jesus accomplished it all. You know, and and if we say, well, but I got to do something, I got to add, I got to kind of help it along, make myself worthy or, or do more to make sure it covers me. What we're really saying when we have those kinds of thoughts is that, well, then Jesus' death just wasn't enough. Hebrews 7.27 reminds us, unlike the other high priests, Hebrews 7.27 says, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins, notice this saying, once for all when he offered himself. Now one other interesting thing about this, it is finished, this completion of Jesus' mission. Genesis 3.15 says that the serpent's head or let's use the word skull, will be crushed by Eve's offsprings. Remember, the serpent will bite her in the ankle or her in the heel, sorry, and she will crush his head. Well, interestingly, the place where Jesus was crucified was called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. So Jesus' death certainly crushed Satan's skull by defeating Satan's work on earth. So is this a coincidence? I don't think it is, but think about that. Something to ponder. And let me ask you the question of application for this point. Do you rest in the truth that Jesus finished the work of salvation and you can add nothing? If you believe that, then I would quote Psalm 45, cease striving. Quit trying to make God like you more be more pleased with you. Just accept the finished work of Christ and then live cooperating with God to finish the work that he has begun in you. Are you willing to do that? To work out your salvation, that salvation you that Jesus bought for you and then you apply it in life. So that is the completion. It is finished. And then finally, Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. This is not just death, it's reunion. 
It was a simple prayer that expressed the complete submission that Jesus has practiced from the very beginning and throughout his whole ministry. Jesus made this triumphant cry with a loud voice. Now, in spite of the asphyxiation, the strangling, uh, losing your oxygen on the cross, uh, when, when a person was crucified, it forced the victims to agonizingly push up against those nails through their feet and push up to exhale. And it made speaking very difficult. But Jesus spoke anyway. Jesus spoke, it said, in a loud voice in another place in Scripture. So Jesus entrusts his future after death to his Father, and he quotes Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. See, all throughout these things, many of them, if not almost all of them, are a fulfillment of a prophetic scripture. Jesus wasn't just declaring his death. He was declaring his glorious reunion with the Father. It was the greatest moment in the history of redemption. And Jesus would seal that redemption and make it real when he burst forth triumphantly from the grave just a few days later. And that's we when we celebrate Easter. So Jesus' passage into death was a deliberate choice of his sovereign will. He didn't just like, oh, my, they caught me, and, and I guess this is it. No, Jesus chose. He said in, in John chapter 19, verse 30, it tells us he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was in sovereign control while all that was happening. No one took Jesus' life. In John 10, 17, and 18, Jesus explained, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So, are you willing to commit your spirit and your very life into the Father's hands like Jesus did, especially in this time of a worldwide health crisis? that You say, I'm going to live for you, God, no matter what happens. No matter what happens to my health, no matter what happens to my job, no matter what happens to my finances, I am going to commit my spirit and my life into your hands, God. Well, let me close with a story. A guy was, well, his name would become eventually Brennan Manning, but early in his life, that wasn't his, his first name. So Brennan Manning was in a war, and he was in a foxhole, with his best friend from childhood, whose name was Ray Brennan. And suddenly this live grenade just flies into their foxhole. Well, Ray looks at Richard and smiles and threw himself on the live grenade. It killed Ray, but Richard Manning's life was saved. So later when Richard Manning became a Franciscan priest, he was told to take the name of a saint. So Richard chose the name Brennan because of this man who gave his life for him. And so that is how Brennan Manning, who wrote, who's written many books, became Brennan Manning. He was Richard Manning, then became Brennan Manning. Well, years later, he went to visit Ray's mother. And they sat late one night, and they were talking, and, and Brennan Manning asked Ray's mother, do you think Ray loved me? 
And Ray's mother got up from the sofa and shook her finger in his face and shouted, What more could he have done for you? Well, Brendan Manning experienced an epiphany that night. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, does God really love me? And Jesus' mother Mary points to her son and says, what more could he have done for you? Do you believe there is nothing more Jesus could have done for you? Do you believe that that you have all the resources that you need right now to live a life in union with God? Will you seek him even during this difficult time of a pandemic? And reflect on these seven sayings of Jesus on the cross to live your life more deeply for him. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would apply these words to our life. And Lord, maybe there, each of us has one of those sayings that really touched a nerve really spoke into the depths of our heart. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't just hear these sayings and then move on, but that we would think about the deep meaning of the salvation that Jesus purchased on the cross. And Lord, help us to walk with you, to be like Jesus in our quest, Lord, to live the kind of life that will make a difference. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.